check, everything checked. We're all yes. looking the same. Isn't that a shame? <laughs> Wish we could improve our appearance. It's <laughs> can't be done. Just so happens in the case of the two of us that there is just no way. God of, gave us no way of improving on nature in all its glory. You see. I don't, don't say <laughs> nature. We got to say God. You know. Yes. Born again Christians. We yes. believe God did it. <laughs> God takes the responsibility for it. Yes. Poor God. <laughs> Okay. Ten seconds. Seven, six, five, four, three, two. There was also massive peaceful dissent in the country, wasn't there, that didn't mm -hmm. seem to threaten life and limb, did it? There was peaceful dissent, which did not threaten life and limb. And I've always uh, made the point that peaceful dissent first should be protected and second, uh, respected. On the other hand, there was a lot of violent dissent as well. We had a situation where in our colleges and universities, some of the teachers were romanticizing the whole idea of protests and of violence and of revolution. Campus riots, not necessarily about the war. They didn't need a cause, race, anything, were flaring up. All of this resulted in the fact that uh, we had uh, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of damage, but even more tragic than that, hundreds of deaths and thousands of people injured, including great numbers of policemen, dead and injured and so forth, in handling this situation. And of course, the terrible riot that occurred uh, at the Democratic Convention. Mr. Chairman, most delegates to this convention do not know that thousands of young people are being beaten and the streets of Chicago. It was a time of turbulence, a time when uh, people, some because of race, some because of the war, some because they were just turned off by the way government had raised their expectations and then frustrated them. People uh, were, frankly, wanting a change. During that frightful week, the demonstrators repeatedly tried to march on the site of the convention, the stockyards. Repeatedly, they were forced back. Where is this freedom of speech, sir? November 15, 1969, more than half a million protesters staged a demonstration billed as the largest peace march on Washington in response to the Vietnam War, and it got under Richard Nixon's skin. Policy made in the streets, he said, would invite anarchy. The late 1960s and early 1970s were arguably one of the most active periods of protest in American history, and Dad invited many demonstrators and their critics to talk on his show. The conversations that resulted were remarkable. What happens is that quite often the people who represent us in government do not carry out the wishes of the people. You know how they say that history repeats itself? Well, my dad had a front row seat to this particular moment in American history, and it feels so much like today. I have indicated how I feel about dissent and what kinds of dissent I think are proper. Do you call their patriotism into a question? Do you impugn their loyalty to the United States? I think this is the kind of thing that undermines the institutions that we really believe in. It's inferred that, that we are not grateful or we don't appreciate the, the greatness that America has. I don't think anyone's saying that. We just want it to live up to its potential. I'm bringing you some of the most compelling tapes from my dad's archive of over 10,000 interviews. 
In this episode, we'll hear from labor organizers, vice presidents, student presidents, and artist entertainers. Politics is people. No, politics is the right to live. I'm Wilfred Frost, and these are the Frost Tapes. Episode 4, Protest and Dissent. I don't think there's any rationale that uh, justifies uh, gunning anybody down. And now it's my uh, privilege to welcome someone who's been described as the man who's perhaps fighting for his and his people's human rights in a way that uh, few people have since Martin Luther King's death. Will you welcome, please, Cesar Chavez? <laughs> welcome. It's a great honor, as you hear, to have you with us. And it's very good to see you able, incidentally, to to walk on, all right. The back is that's been troubling you is much better, is it? It's much better, yes, and I'm very pleased to be here. It's November Thank 1969, you. and Cesar Chavez, who was then 42 years old, walks on stage gingerly. The leader of the United Farm Workers Union, Chavez had spent the previous five years organizing marches, strikes, and other demonstrations in support of California's grape pickers, who'd been denied fair wages and good working conditions. His organizing efforts would slowly turn a regional civil rights cause into an internationally recognized human rights battle. Now, do you feel that you're fighting specifically on behalf of the Californian grape worker? Do you feel that you're fighting on behalf of Mexican-Americans everywhere? Or do you feel you're fighting on behalf of farm workers? I mean, who do you see you're fighting this battle for? Uh, farm workers of all of all uh, races and all creeds. We have uh, many Mexican American farm workers in the uh, southwest of the United States, but as you get into the south and to the east coast, there's a lot of uh, black farm workers and uh, Puerto Ricans and uh, other minority group workers. But the workforce in America, farm labor workforce, is almost predominantly uh, a minority group, very poor, poor and totally disorganized. It's the only major labor force yet uh, unorganized in the country. By unorganized, you mean to have no officially recognized union? Right. Why is that? First of all, the, in the heyday of the uh, New Deal, when all of the social and labor legislation was being enacted, the farm workers were excluded from all of these laws that were enacted in those days to, to protect workers and to give them the right to organize. And we were excluded and have been excluded ever since. And this, I think, is the, the biggest reason why we are not uh, organized. Second, of course, it's a, a very poor uh, workforce. It's migratory, so it doesn't have any roots. It can't develop any, any uh, political power because it moves about. In the 1930s, President Roosevelt's New Deal saw the passage of the National Labor Relations Act, a bill that effectively excluded farm workers from organizing a union. The exclusion had racist origins. At the time, most farm workers were black. One New York politician warned that the restriction was a continuance of virtual slavery until the day of revolt. In the 60s, the law hindered Chavez's organizing efforts, but he was convinced it could be overcome he would adopt a slogan that would become world famous, later immortalized by politicians like Barack Obama, si se puede, that is, yes, we can. Farm workers have been trying to organize a union longer than any other workers in America and have not been able to succeed. But we know very little because very little has been written about them, mostly because 
And some of the great struggles the Japanese had when they were brought here soon after they tried to organize. And very few of them spoke English, so everything was conducted in Japanese. And so we have no really records in this country about that, and Mexicans and Filipinos and other people. So very little has been written, but a lot of, there's an awful lot of history. We're not trying to trace the history of attempts to organize workers all over the country, and we, we hope someday to be able to have a library in Delano where uh, people can come and, and learn more about the past struggle and, of course, the present. How many people are we talking about who come in this farm workers category, do you believe, in America? In America? The best estimates uh, by the Labor Department about uh, three and a half million. They're all over. And you would say that as a group, the vast majority of that three and a half million are suffering in the way that, that you're... Oh yes, the, the workers that uh, we're trying to organize now are the best paid and their uh, annual income is uh, slightly under uh, $2,000 a year. But the average income for farm workers in this country is something like $1,200 a year. As low as that, is it? Yes, it's as low as Compared with a much higher figure, obviously, for the population as a whole. At the time, the median family income was about $9,400, nearly eight times more than what most farm workers earned individually, according to Chavez. And he realized that the only way to overcome this was to attract widespread attention to the issue. He called for a boycott of Californian grapes and would ultimately convince upwards of 17 million Americans to take up his cause. One of the important things is that when victory comes, and if it can come through nonviolence, and I think it will, then you retain your own worth. In other words, your, uh, your own master. But we've made a, a decision that um, we will present our case to the American public and ask them to make a judgment. And we have a lot of hope that they will make a judgment and that the judgment will be in our favor. And this is what all, uh, nonviolence is all about, is involving people, masses of people, to support you. Tell me... What do you see? Are you optimistic about the future? Do you see your message getting across? Do you think these methods of nonviolence about which you speak so eloquently are going to work? They're working. We see them working every day. Nonviolence uh, takes an awful lot of patience and it calls on, on people's creativity to, to a very large degree. And all of these things then um, make it possible to conduct a long, long uh, uh, struggle. If you had to pick, Caesar, what was the first article of your faith, I don't mean necessarily your religious faith, and I don't particularly necessarily mean the first thing you want from the grape growers, but what most of all would you say, what thing is it that you believe in most passionately that drives you around this country with a bad back and so on? What's the most important thing to you that you believe? I think that given the, the information and the making it possible for people to make judgments that a lot of the social ills that we have in our country today would be wiped out overnight. What happens is that quite often the people who represent us in government do not carry out the wishes of the people. And so my hope is that uh, not only for our battle, but uh, the whole question of peace, I think that uh, if the people could make the determination directly that, that we would have peace. One year later, 26 California grape companies would sign contracts recognizing Chavez's union, leading to an increase in pay for more than 10,000 workers. But Chavez's work would not be done, 
Immediately afterwards, he organized the salad bowl strike in support of California's lettuce pickers, sparking the largest farm worker strike in the country's history. The standoff would be heated, opponents would bomb a farm workers' union office, and Chavez would be arrested for refusing to call off the boycott. But his persistence paid off. Five years later, the state of California would become the first to recognize the farm workers' union. In early May of 1970, tensions were high in Kent, Ohio. Richard Nixon had just announced an expansion of military activity in Cambodia, prompting 500 students to protest on the university commons. The demonstrations were heated but initially peaceful. Soon, however, arsonists would burn down the college's ROTC building. The Ohio National Guard was sent to Kent to try to quell any further unrest, but they inflamed it instead. Three days later, upwards of 2,000 students assembled for another protest. Again, the guard tried to disperse the crowd. Some people threw rocks in response, tear gas was exchanged, and then suddenly, gunshots rang out. 67 shots were fired by the National Guard, nine students were wounded, four were killed. All of them had been unarmed. Blame spread quickly. Some locals pinned responsibility on the students. Conspiracy theorists claimed falsely that a sniper had fired the first shot. Critics on the other side not only blamed the soldiers who pulled the trigger, but pointed fingers at the government's leadership, particularly the vice president, Spiro Agnew. For months, Agnew had been making increasingly fiery speeches, critical of students, professors, and the youth protest movement. The student now goes to college to proclaim rather than to learn. The lessons of the past are ignored and obliterated in a contemporary antagonism known as the generation gap. After Kent State, Nixon met with a group of university presidents who, it was noted, all blame Agnew primarily. Welcome the Vice President of the United States, Spiro T. Agnew. Just eight days after the shooting, the vice president appeared on Dad's show to address those criticisms. Do you think there's any justice in that criticism of your statement and the, and the president's? Well, I think there has been, to some extent, uh, among some of uh, the people who admire me least, to draw a, a causal link between some of the speeches I was making and the violence that erupted at Kent State. Now, this, this is just... Uh, the utmost reaching, uh, without any substance to back it up whatsoever. We know what happened at Kent State. We know that these demonstrations took place. Uh, we know that uh, the ROTC building was burned. We know that uh, at, a, at an airport nearby, light planes were overturned and destroyed. The fire hoses were cut. Firemen were stoned. And we know the National Guard were, were stoned. Now. One of the things that's overlooked in that incident is that the guardsmen, and I don't condone their action, they responded with far more force than they should have. But they are young people too, 18, 19, 20 year olds. They're not no older uh, for the most part than the, the students. And if the students are not charged 
with a high level of responsibility in uh, their conduct, then perhaps we should not impose upon the guardsmen a higher level. They're emotional. They were probably under a great amount of tension. One or two may have uh, lost control, and that caused the tragedy. But we can't say the tragedy occurred because I spoke out against campus violence. That no. seems to be uh, pushing it a little far. But you, you think that the guardsmen obviously went far too far? Oh, yes. No question about that. If it's discovered there was no shot fired at them by a sniper, and they just opened fire without a warning shot or anything, uh, not having been fired at in any way, I mean, in that sense, what is, is the word for that murder? Yes, uh, but not first degree. As a lawyer, uh, I'm conversant with the fact that where there's no premeditation, but simply a, an over-response in the heat of anger that results in a killing, uh, it's a murder. It's, it's, it's not a premeditated, but it's a murder, and it certainly can't be condoned. But I would guess that if uh, a very volatile young man got a, a brick in the neck or in the ribs, he might... Uh, just blow up and, and do something like that. The point to remember about that, it seems to me, is that had the rocks not been thrown, there would have been no chance of the killing. And I suppose had the tear gas not been thrown, then the rocks wouldn't have been thrown. That's right. And had the, the buildings not been burned and the threatening assembly not been conducted, the tear gas wouldn't have been thrown. I suppose we could go on. Had the president not announced the uh, excursion into Cambodia, maybe the demonstrations wouldn't have taken place. Well, now that's an interest. Now you're going in back into an interesting area, and I would... Uh, I don't think there's any rationale that uh, justifies uh, burning anything down, but uh, even less is there a rationale, obviously, for gunning anybody down. Right. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. There was clearly a cold dynamic as the interview ended. Dad and Agnew were staring away from each other in silence. Despite that, I discovered a letter in Dad's archives which had been sent by Agnew to Dad a few weeks after that interview. Agnew wrote, During my political career, I've been interviewed on many occasions by the most skillful political probers. In no case did I feel the interviewer was as skillful in bringing out my thoughts as you were. Meanwhile, President Nixon created a commission on campus unrest to investigate dissent on college campuses. Months after the Kent State shootings, the so-called Scranton Commission released a report that called the shootings unjustified and implored the president to use his position to quell unrest and reunite the country. After the report came out, Dad re-invited Agnew onto his show. But this time, Dad also invited four student presidents to debate him, some of whom had been on the commission. I would like you to welcome both the five students who are with, with us in the front row, and would you welcome now to the four who are going to join us on stage. And I don't know which of you would like to speak first, put the first question. Greg. Uh, I have a question for the vice president. Uh, that is Gregory Craig. At the time, he was a second-year law student at Yale. Four decades later, he'd become the White House counsel under President Obama. I have to take a moment and remark that Dad's bookers did an incredible job picking these young adults. Many would go on to lead notable careers. At the beginning of uh, your campaign, 
for this year, Mr. Vice President, you uh, pointed out that the theme of this campaign would be that uh, policy should be made by the elected officials of this country rather than, than by the people in the streets. But uh, in the last three weeks, you have chosen to defame some of the most respected and distinguished public servants in American life today, elected by the people. I think it's uh, been regrettable that you have chosen to attack personalities rather than problems, that you have not addressed yourself to some of the really central issues that are facing American society today. And my question would be, why have you chosen this route at a time more than ever before? We need unity as a nation. We need not necessarily unity, but we need some kind of civilized discourse of, 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 of issues. Well, Greg, I think that I agree with you 100% that what we need is civilized discourse because uh, that's what I'm really trying to reach for. Now, the political climate has to be adversary. That's our system. How else will our people make up their minds about whom they, whose judgments they want to follow unless we have an adversary climate? But it, what's unusual to me is that it seems as though my rhetoric is always called into question. And yet the rhetoric of others who impugn my motives and my philosophy is never called into question. When I was running uh, for vice president, a very respected public servant of the persuasion that you mentioned, had some very unkind things to say about me. He said I was a two-bit hack politician or a fourth-rate hack politician. I didn't see any of the editors or the columnists flying into orbit over this insult. So it's a two-way street. The adversary system, though, is based on an issue, on a, on a exactly. problem. And in the course of the last three weeks, I have not seen you address yourself seriously to any of the serious problems that are confronting the society. For example, the health care that this society has got. We have the worst health care among all industrial nations in the world. The strength of our nation depends upon the health of our people. Why are we not talking about that? Well, I'm not sure I agree with that conclusion that we have the worst health care of, uh, of any industrialized society. This may be some pundit's opinion. But even if it is bad uh, in comparison to our affluence, I think you'd have to agree that President Nixon's programs are trying to do something about that. And the thing I think that most adults resent most about the judgments of some of you young people who criticize us so violently is that you really don't understand what we've done in 50 years about health. You haven't had to grow up with polio or diphtheria, mainly because the people in my generation and the generation before have eliminated that. You haven't had to be hungry. You haven't had to be cold. You've uh, come into a, a period of affluence that has allowed you to have the time to think, principally because Today, a person works about one-third as many hours as he used to have to work to make a living. This gives you more time to think, which we think is great. We want you to think. We want you to challenge. But don't deprecate and downgrade a society that has given you the tools to work with that you have. Sir, I'd like to challenge that Eva. comment, if I may. That voice belongs to Eva Jefferson Patterson, then a student at Northwestern University. She'd given testimony to the Scranton Commission on Student Unrest. Today, she's a civil rights attorney and the co-founder and current president of the Equal Justice Society. This is the type of an attitude that young people have. We realize, as you pointed out, that, that your generation, my parents, have given us the economic security so we can address social problems. Yet, it, it's offensive to me when, when it, it's inferred that, that we are not grateful or we don't appreciate the, the greatness that America has. I don't think anyone's saying that. We just want it to live up to its potential. And this is what bothers me about your statements. You should, we, we realize that, that there are great things going on, but we feel the responsibility 
to vocalize some of the problems of the country because this, this is what we feel, as you said, it's an adversary system and we feel it's our duty to bring up some of the problems. And I, I don't think it's correct when you say we don't appreciate America. Let me take brief exception to one thing you said. And, I, and much of what you said I, I find uh, very encouraging, uh, particularly in contrast with what you said to the Scranton co uh, Commission when you said uh, the only way to get the attention of the society is to bomb buildings. But let me, uh, let me say this. Uh, I don't believe that, uh, that it's possible uh, to say that this society is broken down and is not continuing to respond to the problems. Evie, the words that uh, the Vice President quoted, were they the words that you said to the Scandal Commission? Did you endorse that point of view or were you describing a situation you saw? Your attack on me in, in saying what was allegedly that I said before the Scranton Committee is an example of what Greg was talking about. Instead of looking beyond the personalities and into the issues, you just pick up on, on, on something that was allegedly that I said. What I said, in fact, in front of the, the Scranton Commission was this, and I'll give you my rationale for saying it. I represent a student body at Northwestern University that has a cross-section of people, just as you represent a country that has a cross-section of people. Among those students at the university are people who would be termed radicals or revolutionaries. I myself am not one of those students. However, I feel honor bound to represent those people because they are part of my constituency. What I attempted to do before the Scranton Committee was to explain what could motivate someone to blow up a building. You, you'll see that on, during our strike, during May, there's no violence on our campus. And I was part of the leadership of the strike, students helped prevent violence. What I did say, however, was examine the civil rights movement in our country. Now, there was civil rights legislation before the Congress. It was held up, slowed down. Some of it was coming out, but not fast enough. All of a sudden, Watts blew up, Detroit blew up, and we saw the legislation coming out of Congress with much greater speed than it was before. You'll notice that every time a black ghetto blows up, the mayor of a city all of a sudden decides it's now time for him to go down and investigate this ghetto and see what would motivate people to act out like this. And what I'm saying is if someone studies the history of this country, which you would have to admit does have a lot of violence, a person looking at that might be inclined to think the only way to move society is to blow up a building. I did not say I endorsed this, and if you read my testimony quite carefully, you'll know that I didn't. And it's this type of, of just picking up on what allegedly I said instead of really studying what I said that, that really disturbs me about your whole process of, of going about and talking around the country. You're doing us a great disservice. I am not in any sense uh, at all unsympathetic to the discrimination that's taken place. I want to help cure it. But to say that the way to bring about social change is even a tacit acceptance of violence is wrong. And uh, I read your testimony. I didn't go by the news reports. But, but you did also indicate that the only way to get results sometimes is violent conduct. And you just repeated that now. As you sure. pointed out these situations where uh, things happen after there's violence. I say this is a poor rationale to get results. But, but surely what you were saying, Eva, was in fact that uh, what you were saying was that it seems to a tiny minority that that's the only way to make people listen. Not it's the only way that I think results can be got, isn't it? I, I wish you would listen to what I'm saying because I've said two or three times that I'm not in favor of violence. I've never participated in a violent act. 
I was trying to explain to you the rationale of some students who are openly, openly revolutionary, yet my trying to explain them to you, you take for a position of advocacy. This is one of the problems. You're not listening to what I'm saying. You're doing us a great disservice because you're making people afraid of their own children. The way, the way you talk about students is as though they're people from another planet who were dropped down on college campuses with no more intention than to just blow up buildings and to destroy our society. Yet they're your children, they're my parents' children, they're the children of this country. Yet you're making people afraid of them. There's an honest difference of agreement on issues, but, but when you make people afraid of each other, you, you isolate people. And maybe this is your goal, but I think this, is, this could only have a disastrous effect on the country. one of your comments, yeah. and that was, what right do a small percentage of people have to, and I think this is quoting from one of your speeches, harass the president. Now, if I could, could be historical for a moment, using my student perspective, <laughs> slavery in this country went on for a number of years, supported by the majority of the people. It was a small minority of people who were termed radical, maybe radical liberals in their times, who kept agitating who kept agitating continually. And they were looked down on. You know, the abolitionists were looked on as the crazies of their day. Yet, looking back in perspective on that, we see that they were right. A lot of people are protesting to the policies of your particular administration. I think it is our moral obligation to protest those things. As I said, there's a lot of things right with America. It's just that I think it's our moral obligation to, quote, harass the president. It's not harassing. It's our constitutional right. Well, I Mr. agree with you 100%. It's a moral obligation not to harass the president, but certainly to, to take him on where you think he's wrong. Yeah. But I don't see why... Uh, taking some violent stance, uh, disrupting the rights of other people to move freely and to assemble freely, as happened to me in Saginaw, Michigan, when I tried to make a speech and was shouted down by a bunch of people who had no idea what they wanted to say to me, except they didn't want me to be heard. Now, that's repression of my right to express myself. Mr. Vice President, what other forms of uh, conduct or agitation? What else would you rule out of court? Sure. I have uh, indicated how I feel about dissent and what kinds of dissent I think are proper. Lawful dissent is proper. I, I have no quarrel with certain types of civil disobedience where the law being violated is directly related to the grievance. But I think when a person lies down in the streets of the city of Washington and disrupts traffic because he doesn't like something the Department of Agriculture is doing, that's a little bit much. One of the things I'd rule out, uh, in the way of nonviolent conduct is that kind of conduct that deprives other people of their rights. Now, let me give you a perfect example. Suppose a, a group of people marched into this room and suddenly stationed themselves in front of each of those cameras, nonviolently, and said, because we don't think that uh, this the format is proper, you're not going to be able to show this program. That's the kind of nonviolent conduct that imposes on the rights of others. What's funny is that just two months later, exactly that would happen when Dad invited Jerry Rubin onto the show. He was the radical yippie prankster who'd been charged with inciting a riot during the 1968 Democratic National Convention. I accidentally turned on this uh, bubblegum for the mind television and saw <laughs> you have a conversation with a mass murderer. Have a Spiro Agnew is a mass murderer. Nonsense. Mass murderer of Vietnamese. You had a conversation with him, and you set up a phony debate between elected college students who debated Spiro Agnew for two hours, and it was nauseating. It's like a debate with Adolf Hitler. 
Shortly after, Rubin's posse stormed the stage. Some came in costume, others held flowers, some wielded noisemakers. Dad's booted from his chair and smoke begins to waft into the air as Jerry Rubin lights a joint. And then things really got out of hand. How many people do you think will have been converted to your cause watching you all we this evening? We don't care, we're telling you what we think. Jerry, no, Jerry, no, it's a reasonable question and Jerry's a reasonable man, he'll probably answer it. It's not reasonable, man, he's the most unreasonable I've ever been in my life. <laughs> Well, it's not well, that's how pathetic. Oh, pathetic. A game, Shut up. A Listen, listen, by laughing childishly when you manage to say a four-letter word on television, big deal. Okay, man, how many times have you said a four-letter word on television? Never, and I hope I never will because it's so pathetic and so childish and so pointless, and we'll be right back. Dad was not very happy with the yippee rhetoric. Spiro Agnew, by comparison, sounded like afternoon tea. And yet, Agnew was in a position of power that gave his words added impact. His student, Gregory Craig, addressing Agnew from the debate show. I think it's, it's fair to say that there are responsible things that people can say and irresponsible things that people can say. As you pointed out, the four-letter arguments don't impress you. But the content of, of rhetoric strikes me as being very important because it provides an atmosphere and a, and a milieu for the way in which people think politically. In the last week, you've uh, attacked the United States Senate, and you've defined a radical liberal as a, uh, a group of senators who are a little band of men guided by a policy of calculated weakness who vote to weaken our defenses, they vote to weaken our moral fiber, they vote to weaken the forces of law. Now, sir, that is a, quite a serious charge to be making against a popularly elected official in the United States who simply disagrees with you on certain issues. Do you call their patriotism into uh, question? Do you impugn their loyalty to the United States? I think this is the kind of thing that undermines authority, undermines the institutions that we really believe in. Mr. Well, Vice President. This is an adversary climate. My rhetoric is no different than the rhetoric that's been turned upon me, sometimes a lot less inflammatory. Harry Truman uh, called uh, his opponents snollygosters, whatever that was. Teddy Roosevelt called them pusillanimous pussyfooters. Uh, the the rhetoric hasn't changed. I stole it from Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Mr. Vice President, I wonder, sir, if it's appropriate to challenge their patriotism and to. Uh, well, let me, let me just answer that because I wanted to get to that part. In the same speeches that you quote, there are passages that very carefully say, that I do not impugn or question their patriotism. I do not question their motives. This, this is part of the speech. I have always qualified my criticisms of these people. I think they're terribly wrong. And I reserve the right to take them on. And let me tell you one thing. I am not going to stop saying what I have to say about them in a way that I want to say it, because this is my right of free speech. I don't have any idea allowing anybody to repress me any more than you do. We'll be right back. And now we welcome back to join us 
one of the most marvellous voices in the world. It's a pleasure to welcome her back, Miss Joan Baez. Joan Baez is a singer-songwriter, and like many other folk singers, her art was inseparable from her social activism. She joined Dad on multiple occasions. What brings you east? Singing, but also marching, yes? Um, yes, you know, you get kind of, you get used to what's going on, you get used to people dying and people being bombed, and pardon me for bringing everybody down, but you kind of have to think about it, you know, and then, then somebody does something that's so outrageous that you, you come back to your senses again. This appearance, June 1972, was shortly after President Nixon announced increased bombings in North Vietnam. And so some friends of mine got together and tried to figure out what would be the best thing for us to do. And I got in touch with uh, Mrs. Martin Luther King. She and I met and decided to call out the women and children of America to come to Washington on the 22nd of June and to um, have some kind of a march. And so we met with nuns and POW mothers and Gold Star mothers and women from the United Auto Workers and from welfare rights and you name it. And uh, the feeling is for me that, that all the years I've been working, you know, the kind of political work I do, meaning trying to create a, a society where people don't murder each other. You know, that's about as simple as you can explain it. You try to Bize's social activism started from birth. Her parents were Quakers. As a young artist, Baez participated in countless marches, including the 1965 march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. She'd also marched with Cesar Chavez. She's quoted saying that as a Quaker, we were taught that you don't go to war, you go to jail instead. Do you believe that pacifism or nonviolence or whatever can work, in fact, if it's only practiced on one side? Are you optimistic that it can influence both sides? Or do you think? If you wait for it to happen on the other side, you're just waiting to be the last evil person on earth. I mean, our whole psychology is crazy of waiting for somebody else to come through and prove their good intentions because it never happens until you do it. Well, I, I was saying that I thought that uh, the theory of pacifism fell down in the case of someone like Hitler, if, you know, uh, when if I was talking to John Lennon. But John Lennon said, well, if he'd been taught peace from when he was born. It's not Lennon. just that. You see, Hitler couldn't survive in a society where everybody didn't follow him. And the trouble with us is, see, I would junk the word pacifist and nonviolence if we could find something to replace it with, because those conjure up, the, you know, bad images. But. But Think if, of a new word. Think of a new word now. The best word is what uh, nonviolence is in Indian, which translated as truth force, because it gives you an idea of, you know, of thrust and aggression and force, which is necessary. This notion of nonviolence as an aggressive form of pacifism was something Baez had been fostering for years. In the early 1960s, she took a page out of Thoreau's handbook and protested the war in Vietnam by refusing to pay a portion of her income taxes. When the government retaliated, she started thinking of more constructive ways to resist. In 1965, she established the Institute for the Study of Nonviolence in Carmel, California, to teach the works of Thoreau, Krishnamurti, Camus, and others to inspire a new kind of revolution. But when you talk about the revolution, what do you mean? I, you don't mean so much uh, a coup d'etat as a revolution in people's hearts, do you? What I would mean by revolution is, you know, in the simplest form would be to accept a new meaning for the word revolution, which means it no longer is the coup d'etat. I mean, it no longer is taking the bottom or the quote oppressed and putting them on the top so they can then oppress everybody who's underneath them, which is such a tempting thing to do and which is what usually happens. But I really feel that revolution means new vision, new hope for all of mankind, which has to include the policemen or it's a fake. 
I mean, because the policemen and you and I are oppressed in ways that, you know, that, I mean, really, and that starving people need to be fed, you know, and that people with much wealth need to share that wealth. And the idea of profit has to go down the drain and the idea of benefit has to grow in its place and things like that. You know, that to me is what revolution means. Because you'd never supported particularly a party, have you? I mean, in politics, no. it's been uh, no. issue-oriented, what you've done, hasn't it? Well, politics, one of the roots of that word is polis, which at one time meant people, you know? And so to me, politics is people. And, and, and people, the one serious thing about people, which we keep neglecting, is their right to live, you know? And I don't think that party politics has much to do with people's right to live. Party politics has to do with a nation's right to survive. And I think the nation does not have anything much to do with people. I think it works pretty much against it. You mean you'd like to see the nation state? Dissolve, yeah, whatever. But yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? But I mean, on the one hand, obviously, that it would be immensely desirable to see every border in the world torn down. Maria Manis, we quoted the other day. You don't even have to tear it down, you just walk over it. Right. But then again, at the same time, you find among people who've just found their rights for the first time, like I found in Bangladesh, there is a tremendous national pride there, which yeah. is a beautiful thing to see. I don't think it's beautiful. I think righteousness is a real pain. I mean, everybody gets righteous about something. And, and every time you get righteous about something, you get exclusive about it. Right. You know, so if we could do, begin to do away with pride, which is a very hard thing to do, and do away with righteousness. Yeah, but I, don't, I wasn't saying that, no, I agree with a lot of that, but I, was, I wouldn't have said the people of Bangladesh were righteous particularly. They had achieved their national freedom from what they regarded as an oppressor, namely Pakistan. Now, that's not righteous. So I was saying it's, it's, a, it's, it's freedom in their terms, but I meant that freedom is linked for them with a sense of national identity. And, and as you're I saying, the sense of... I think it's a pity. Yeah. You think national identity is and, out of date, but will it yeah. ever be out of date is the question. If it doesn't get out of date, if we don't make it out of date, then we probably won't survive more than another 1,500 years. That's the problem. Today, it's hard to fathom the scale of homegrown violence in America during the 1970s. Between 1971 and 72, there were about 2,500 bombings across the country. That's about five per day. For many, the news was numbing and could inspire feelings of helplessness and futility. For others, it meant giving up on the commitment to non-violence, but not for Joan Baez. Non-violence is threatened on both sides at the moment. Do you think non-violence can, can triumph? In the sense that some of those who were devoted to non-violence seem to have turned to violence. There are a lot of people who tried non-violence as a political, tactical weapon, you know, who got fed up with it. But they were never people who were devoted. And I've seen it happen both ways. I've also seen people who seemed steeped in a violent approach who suddenly could not stand it anymore, you know, and threw in the towel and said, please help me find another way to fight, because it all became too repulsive to them. But I think that non-violence, if one looks at it, what I would say is, is organized love. And if you look at it that way, obviously That's it's, a the, great phrase, well, it's the only thing that can triumph. I mean, for 6,000 years of violence, one cannot say that violence has triumphed. I mean, what we have is the verge of World War III. And what we have, you know, is, is nation states not really coexisting with people. I mean, the nation state has taken over. A flag is more important than a human life. You know, a piece of property is more important than a human life. When people have a conflict over one piece of land versus another piece of land, the first thing that runs is human blood. And I don't think, you know, this is any kind of triumph. It's just that violence, I think, is easier 
for men to use, and so they, they go on using it and hanging on to it. You can't sit by, you can't be passive, but we have to take on new weapons. I mean, you have to say, my mind is a weapon, even if it's feeble. You know, my, my sense of humor is my weapon, my imagination is my weapon, and my ability to try to reach other people, but see them, you know, and, and recognize that their lives are sacred and try to deal with them. Anybody, you know, a policeman, a president, ugh, you know, all of them. But you don't get to kill them. Even if you can't stand them, you don't get to kill them. You know, and then once you recognize that, then you do find alternative ways of acting. Next time on The Frost Tapes, we hear from James Baldwin and other African-Americans on how they handled racism in America 50 years ago. To make the American people realize that the myth they were living with, the mask of color, it was not so much destroying black people as it was destroying whites. It's just one black cat in America I know that voted for Agnew and Nixon, and he's missing. <laughs> Tell me, as you look ahead, do you, are you confident that black and white can live together? I don't think that's the question for black people, it's the question for white people, because black people have shown their willingness and capability to coexist with white people. These interviews have been edited for length and clarity. The Frost Tapes is a production of iHeartRadio and Paradine Productions. Executive producers of The Frost Tapes are Wilfred and George Frost. Executive producer for iHeartMedia is Mangesh Hatikada. Produced by Ryan Murdoch and Nikki Etor. Written by Lucas Riley, Ryan Murdoch and Wilfred Frost. Directed and edited by Ryan Murdoch with help from Abu Safar and Michelle Lands. Fact-checked by Austin Thompson. Special thanks to David Peck at Reeling in the Years Productions and Morgan Lavoie of iHeartMedia. 